Well, today we are continuing in our series through Colossians. A few weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, and we're just not quite over it yet. So we are going to continue talking about the beauty and the majesty and the goodness of Jesus, particularly through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. This letter is written to an incredibly young church that Paul didn't actually plant. So Paul's friend plants this church, and Paul is writing to them out of prison in hopes that they will grow in spiritual maturity. He advances this idea that in the life, death, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus, a new kingdom was birthed. And that spiritual maturity is learning to live in accordance with this new kingdom. In other places, Paul calls us citizens of a new heaven, citizens of a new kingdom. That's to say we live in accordance with a kingdom not of this world, but one made by Christ. And his whole hope, his whole desire is for this young church to remain committed despite whatever cultural, philosophical, or theological pressures they might be facing. Whatever is happening, his hope is that they remain mature. And speaking of which, uh, it sounds familiar because I think we might be in a similar moment. I don't know, the last time you opened up your news app, it actually is probably a good practice just to delete it for a while. <laughs> but just in opening it, it seems like it gets bonkers, like more bonkers each time I open it that they're like, how, how do we upstage yesterday's headlines with today's? Like Twitter belongs to Elon Musk, basically. Uh, Ukraine is still suffering under Russian attacks. Um, and maybe the stock market's about to crash. I don't know. There was like this whole financial turbulence on Friday. Things are bonkers. Things are crazy. But I'm good. Like, if I think about it for a second, I'm safe. I have a place to sleep. I eat most days, even if 5 p.m. is known as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, I eat most days. Dr. Strange comes out in a week, and Stranger Things comes out this summer. Like, despite what's going on in the news, like, I'm good. Like, if I think about my life, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. But why do I feel so exhausted? Why do I feel so bruised? Why do I feel so battered? And I'm not talking like at a body level, I'm talking at like my mind, my emotions, my soul feel battered, bruised. And I don't wanna use sensational language for the sake of sensational language, but I think it might be helpful to just name it. That it feels like we're at war. That it feels like our soul is being crushed and influenced from opposite sides. There's a Catholic theologian that I desperately love, and in it, he kind of describes our moment as being crushed from all sides. That when we lay down at night, there's just a sense of dread and exhaustion. Maybe let's call it what it is. Maybe it's that we're at war. Now, I have no desire to throw gasoline on the conflict of the moment or to stoke the fires of the culture war, but I think it is helpful to name what we're experiencing and to use accurate language to describe it. 
But it's not a war that's fought with tanks or bullets or drones or swords. It's a war of information. As 21st century people, much of our understanding, much of our imagination around warfare comes from World War II. Like when we think about war, we typically think of two evenly matched armies duking it out for the fate of the world. However, most of the conflict of the 21st century has not been with bullets, but with ideas. Nations of the world have been playing games in the shadows for decades, attempting to sow discord, influence elections, redirect resources, upset order. It is a conflict of ideas. And the weapons of today are not, again, tanks, drones, and bullets. They're troll farms. Fake news, false narratives, misleading information. It is beyond crazy to me that a single tweet can be more destabilizing than a bullet. But that's the reality of the world we live in, that information is powerful. And this soul-level weariness that we all feel is because we are caught in the midst of an information war. And the voice we choose to believe will either lead us into captivity or into victory. Notice what Paul says in verse eight of our passage. See to it that no one takes you captive. See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That phrase, the elemental spiritual forces of the world, is a rare one in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else, and it's a little bit tricky to interpret. So here are three possible interpretations, and then this is going to lead us down a rabbit trail, and then we're going to emerge again, and we're gonna have some fun. The first interpretation could be that it are, these are elemental doctrines or teachings, that what Paul is doing is personifying a thought. He's saying these thoughts are empowered. The second is that these are the elements of the world, earth, air, water, and fire. Everything changed when the fire nation attacked. <laughs> earth, wind, air, and fire. It's unlikely that this is what he's talking about. This doesn't show up again at all in Pauline's theology, Pauline theology, so that's unlikely. The third, and most likely, is that he's speaking of elemental spirits or gods that are at work most notably in unjust systems and rulers. I lean towards option three in part because Paul alludes to the existence of spiritual beings in other parts of his writing. We've heard this before, Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul use the, uses this language of military, of wrestling, of fighting. He says to first, in 1 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In Romans 13, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And faith feels like, like that at times. Feels like a wrestling match. Feels like a battle. And this is often what is called spiritual warfare. And let me tell you, that is a cringy Google. 
do not go out and Google spiritual warfare because it is very cringy. It holds very little um, scriptural basis and is found more in like the masculine imagination of like putting on like armors and swords and going hunting demons. If Paul was interested in you going to hunt demons, he would give it, had given us a guide to hunting demons. That is not spiritual warfare. Rather, spiritual warfare, like the warfare of the 21st century, is waged in information. It is waged in whose voice are you listening to? And Paul is emphatically clear, our struggle is not with each other. Our struggle is not with other human beings. It is with the enemy of our soul. And so let's go down a rabbit hole really quick. It'll be fun, I promise. And let's hear what Jesus has to say on the nature of our enemy. Because you are all familiar with the scripture, hopefully enough to know that this character, this persona known as the devil or the Satan or the accuser or the hostile one or the deceiver shows up regularly. But let's hear specifically what Jesus has to say on this character from John 8, 44 through 45. Jesus has just been questioned about his parentage. Um, the people around knew that Mary was unwed. And so in the passage just before this, there are some biting remarks that the Pharisees are making about Jesus's parentage. And this is what Jesus retorts. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Three observations from this passage. The first one, just up front, Jesus believes that there is a hostile intelligence known as the devil. Throughout the New Testament, there are a lot of names that describe spiritual beings hell-bent on disrupting God's intended, um, intended purposes for the created order. They're described as the devil, the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the ancient servant, demons, the elemental spirits of the world, the rulers, the authorities and powers, cosmic powers over the present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There are a lot of names. What's kind of crazy is the scriptures are surprisingly vague on their origin, on their shape or even their name. There's roughly 15 names just in the New Testament. And according to Jesus, these beings, in partnership with humans, are responsible for all the evil in the world. If you look throughout the Old Testament narrative, these beings pop up not doing things on their own, but working in tandem with willing or unwilling human counterparts. That in the mind of Jesus, spiritual beings in partnership with humans are responsible for all the evil in the world. And I get it. I hear it. I hear myself saying it. I'm up here talking about devils, demons, and spiritual beings that want to kill you. <laughs> Listen, 
I know how it sounds. And if I'm honest, I confess this to my micro church on Friday. If I'm honest, it is very difficult for me to imagine a world in which demons are pulling at the strings of power. It's really difficult for me to imagine that this is the way the world works. I live in a moment, we all live in a moment in which everything tells us to trust what our eyes can see. Trust what we can sense. And if you can't see and you can't sense it, it's probably not real. But I also have to be honest with the fact that this is how Jesus understood the world. This is how he understood the nature of reality. And it seems intellectually dishonest for me to um, say, I love Jesus's ethical teachings on love your neighbor as yourself or to do unto others and to at least not consider that he knew something about the nature of reality that I don't. It's intellectually dishonest to pick and choose from this teacher's body of thought. And so perhaps you will join me in just working to question our own perception of reality. Now, I am not suggesting we do away with the scientific process. I am not suggesting that 200 years worth of analytical research just be done away with. But there remain a significant amount of phenomena that empirical data, data cannot explain. And here's all I'm suggesting. Maybe we trust that Jesus' perception of reality fills in the gap. Maybe we just suspend our disbelief just long enough to ask, is this the way that things actually are? Jesus actually believed that there was a hostile intelligence behind the evil in the world. Second, the way Jesus describes the devil is that this individual's end goal is anti-creation or death. Remember Jesus' description in John 8, 8. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. A few chapters later in John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Where God's goal is abundant creation, the enemy's aim is death. And while I often think we imagine these beings as jump scares in horror movies, the New Testament more often refers to them as spiritual conspirators in the human systems. So imagine yourself, if your aim was to cause as much chaos, destruction, and death as possible, you probably wouldn't be haunting a house, possessing a doll, or hiding under the bed. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be a jump scare in someone's house. You would likely go to the places of power. Now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to discount anyone's experience, and I want us to leave room for the very real possibility of those types of events and circumstances. But just if we think about it, like, it doesn't make sense to go to those places. It makes sense to go to the places of power you would make your way to the places where decisions that impact millions are made. You'd work through governments, you'd work through businesses, you'd work through community organizations and cultural institutions to disrupt life. Scott McKnight, in commenting on both the elemental 
spirits of the world. And later down in uh, verse 15, it's mentioned the powers, the rulers and authorities says this. The terms powers and authorities from, first, or from Colossians 16 and 2.15 undeniably describe spiritual and cosmic forces at work in this world. Yet some of this language is routinely used for, say, Roman structures and institutions. In other words, the powers refer to dark cosmic forces that are at work in the structures of God's world. This is to not offer a condemnation of all forms of human organization. This is to say that the collective potential of human beings that work together can be steered towards immense good or unimaginable evil. Nazi Germany, the antebellum south, and the killing fields of Cambodia are all proof that the demonic has political prowess. And that it is our role as the people of God to confront evil wherever it lies whether it lies in the haunting of a house or in the halls of power, it is our calling to confront evil with good. This is our good fight of faith, is to confront evil wherever we find it. And in particular, it is to confront the lies of the evil one. For the third thing that we can observe from Jesus' description is that the enemy's primary means of destruction is deception. Again, remember Jesus' words. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 8. Remember, the enemy's methods are not full frontal assaults with tanks, drones, and swords. Rather, they are the subtle lies that appeal to our disordered desires. For as Dallas Willard puts it, ideas are the primary stronghold of evil of the human self and in society. Every act of violence begins with an idea. Every systematic injustice begins in a boardroom in which someone makes a suggestion. Every piece of evil that we can think of started with a lie. In Genesis 3, the serpent didn't come after Eve with demonic possessions, weird noises, or a stick. They came after Eve with a subtle and appealing thought. You will be like God. Note that the deception only works when it appears attractive, desirable, legitimate. For evil rarely looks like evil until it accomplishes its goal. No one's violence begins as, oh, it would be wonderful to just murder. These lies simply start as something that appeals to our disordered desires. And then we slowly begin to take advantage of our fellow human for the sake of doing what feels good. You might be better than that person because of their ethnicity. It doesn't matter. No one can see you. What they don't know can't hurt them. If I were better looking, I'd be more lovable. If I can just get that position, I'll be satisfied. It doesn't matter what I have to say to do it. I'm better because I'm more successful. The enemy whispers things we think will lead to happiness, 
but only lead us into captivity. All this is to say that maybe the heaviness and the weariness of our souls is that there is a very real hostile intelligence that wants your destruction and often tempts you with deception. Willard also says that your belief in truth is determined by how well you interact with reality. You want to know if you've bought into lies, think about how well you're interacting with reality. Someone who claims to not believe in gravity will discover gravity is a very real thing very quickly. How well you are moving in the direction of the God of love will tell you if you've bought into a lie. This is what Paul is writing about in our passage today. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depend on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. You thought I forgot about the Colossian passion. We're coming right back to it. In verse eight, we see that the Colossian believers, these members of a young church, were sold the philosophy, a lie that particular religious performances granted them access to the gods and to spiritual maturity absent of following Jesus. This lie is not just rooted in human deceit, but in demonic deceit. For just as the serpent tempted Eve not to trust God, the Colossians are tempted not to trust in Christ alone. And this remains the root of all the enemy's lies and of spiritual warfare itself. What if, if we began to conceptualize spiritual warfare not as like demon hunting, but in the process of choosing to wade through the ideas we have about reality and really ask the question, am I trusting Christ in this? That spiritual warfare is sifting through the ideas and the concepts of reality that we have and just beginning to ask the question, does this align with Christ's good kingdom? Paul goes on to confront the lie that Christ is not enough. And that's the bulk of this passage is he confronts the lies that the Colossians are believing with truth. This is why Paul launches into who Christ is and what he has done. And I wish I could spend a lot of time really unpacking the beauty of this particular passage. I, was, I am still very excited to preach it, but it is one of those passages where as you look through it, there's just unending beauty and goodness of Paul's description of Jesus. Paul launches into who Jesus is and what he has done. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Repeating the claims from his poem in chapter one, verses 15 through 20, Paul once again describes that the whole of the creator God is revealed in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God has always looked like, looks like Jesus. There has never been a time in which God did not look like Jesus. We didn't always know it, but now we do. God always looks like Jesus. 
And as N.T. Wright suggests, commenting on this passage, these verses give the Colossians reasons why they must not be ensnared by lies. There is nothing that these philosophies have to offer that is not better in Christ. Now, brief aside, Paul is not saying all philosophy is evil. Um, Paul was very well acquainted with the Greek philosophers of his day and even uses their argument styles. He uses their language to describe the beauty of Christ. So he's not talking about philosophy as a study. He's talking about a particular philosophy as a body of thought. So he is confronting this body of thought that the Colossians are beginning to believe. And he's saying that that body of thought has nothing on Jesus. Whatever truth they claim is a shadow of what is available in Christ. Whatever happiness they claim is a fraction of what is available in Christ. Whatever goodness they claim is found abundantly more in Christ. We lose in the realm of spiritual warfare, thus spiritual maturity as well, anytime we believe the original lie that Christ is not enough. And Paul gives us three ways to confront this lie and to know that Christ is enough. Worship team, if you guys want to join me. We'll quick, quickly land the plane with Paul's three thoughts on knowing Christ is enough. First, he offers this idea that we lean into the community of truth. Second, that our sins do not dictate our future. And finally, that Christ has defeated the powers of darkness. First, lean into the community of truth. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you have also been raised with him through faith and the powerful workings of God who raised him from the dead. There's a whole lot to unpack and I am not gonna get into circumcision right now. That is a whole different thing. So there's a lot to unpack, but for the sake of time, here's what I'll say. I'm going to make a very reductive statement to this whole passage, so don't come up to me later going like, that's your theology of baptism? That is not it. I'm making a reductive statement. It's on record. You can't email me about it. <laughs> Both circumcision and baptism were signs that you belong to a particular community that their function communally is as a signpost that you belong to a particular community, God's community. Baptism specifically is a signifier of union with Christ and belonging to a new family. Therefore, to resist the temptation to think Christ is not enough, we must learn to lean into the community of truth for the lies of the enemy thrive in isolation. When we get in our heads and we're reliant upon our own resources to combat them, we inevitably fall prey to believing lies. Now, I am as much an introvert as anyone. I love my times of retreat and isolation, but I've also discovered I'm most vulnerable in those moments. That I am most vulnerable when I am alone. And even in Jesus's life, it was when he was in the isolation of a wilderness that the enemy came at him with three different temptations. Paul's encouragement is remember the community you belong to. And in doing so, you allow the lies of the enemy to be challenged, to be disarmed when you are brought into the company of God's people. And you ask for them to speak the truth to me, no matter how much it hurts, because 
unwinding the captivity of lies is sometimes a painful process. And we need each other to speak truth to one another. This is one reason amongst many that we gather on Sundays and in microchurch to allow the truth of this community to be spoken against the lies of the enemy. We need each other to disarm the lies we've believed about ourselves. We need each other to speak the truth of Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is to say our sins do not dictate our future. Do not believe the lie that I did it once. It's what I'm always going to be. Do not believe the lie that your brokenness is now your identity. This is not to not say that we are perfect. Far from it. I'll be the first to admit this is not about saying we're all perfect. But it is to say that in our apprenticeship to Jesus, in committing ourselves to following him, we are progressively learning what it means to believe truth over lies. Life over death in Christ over the evil one. That in walking with him, we learn to hear the voice of truth. Cassie has a very distinct voice and you all have known, like I'll be in another room and I can hear Cassie's voice particularly. Uh, I think it's because it's distinct, but I've also lived with her for almost five years now. And there's a, you, you learn to kind of catch the voice of someone. In walking with Jesus, we learn to hear his truth over the noise of everything else. Paul's final argument is that the powers of darkness have been defeated by Christ. He writes, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this section, and it is it, it's gold. When you were stuck in your old sin, dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Just a few weeks ago, we reflected on the drama of Holy Week, the climactic cultivation of all of Jesus's life. And this point in particular is Paul's brilliant and imaginative retelling of those moments. If you remember, the rulers and authorities of Rome and Israel, the greatest government and the highest religion the world had ever known at the time, conspired to execute a peasant carpenter from a rural town on a Roman cross. These powers, these rulers and authorities, angry that Jesus dared to challenge their authority, stripped him naked, held him up for public humiliation, and celebrated their triumph over him by marching him through the streets of Jerusalem. But in one of the most imaginative descriptions of the cross, Paul declares that it was not Jesus who was defeated that day. In a breathtaking reversal, it is God who stripped the powers naked, holding them up to public humiliation and leading them on a parade to show the world that they have been conquered. 
The cross, therefore, has become a source of hope for all those who have been held captive. It is Paul inviting you to say, look at your shame. Look at the lies you have believed. Look at everything that has bound you up. It is marching naked. It is marching powerless. It has been robbed of its authority in the resurrection of Jesus. Spiritual warfare is not hunting for demons. It's choosing to look through the lies we have believed and allowing the power of Jesus to break our captivity and lead us into victory. It is to work through the lies of the enemy. It is to learn to believe truth over the lies. Spiritual warfare has often been turned into an odd exercise of the will. It's as if, you know, we kind of say Jesus' name is like Harry Potter, like we just wave it and everything goes away. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that tonight, you know, whenever you're struggling with anxiety or you think the thought, who's going to know? They just go, in Jesus' name, I'm not going to be tempted. That's, I don't think that's how that works because we have years of believing a lie. And so I don't think spiritual warfare just goes, okay, now I'm just going to introduce Jesus' name to everything. I think it is the progressive process of choosing to get close enough to truth that you begin to recognize when lies pop up. As Paul and Jesus teach us, spiritual warfare most often comes in the form of the lie, and the way we confront those lies is with truth. Spiritual warfare is putting yourself in proximity to truth. So the way I confront the lies of the enemy is not on my own, out of my own resources, but choosing day after day to open up the scriptures and to engage truth. I might not be able to stop the enemy from lying to me, but I can make the choice to show up to Aaron and Miranda's living room, to show up for micro church to reflect on the story of God week in and week out. I cannot stop the temptations, but I can choose to be here on Sunday and to hear the word proclaimed. I can't choose to just be less anxious, but I can put practices in my life that get me a little bit closer to hearing the truth of God. This is not some, some statement about just add Jesus' name to things. It's about investing into practices that put you into proximity with the truth. I cannot stop all the evil influences around me, but I can choose to get into proximity with the truth. What if our part in spiritual warfare is to simply put ourselves in position to hear the truth and trust Jesus to do the rest? That our role is to get near to the teller of truth. Lord, we pray that your word would penetrate our heart. That this week, as we reflect on this message, as we get into proximity with truth, that you would begin to undo the lies that we have believed. The lie of inefficiency, that I am not good enough. The lie that someone is better than me. Lord, I pray that you would disarm it. The lie that I am unlovable. God, I pray that you would disarm it. The lie of my inadequacy, I pray that you would 
disarm it. The lie of isolation, I pray that you would disarm it. Lord, I pray that you would begin to disarm the things that we have begun to believe about ourselves. And that you would lead us as the community of truth in recognizing lies wherever they cry. It's in Christ's name we pray. weekly podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.